Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to me. Pleasure to be here. I haven't been here for two weeks. If uh, you haven't been here, shame on you, unless you were on vacation with me or near me or doing the same type of thing as me. We had a great time. Thank you for letting me get away. I appreciate the opportunity to just get refreshed uh, with my family. We spent a week down in Jersey and then uh, Shore and then another week down in North Carolina, and uh, the Lord really refreshed us. So it's good to be back, though. I enjoy uh, being here with you. Today we're uh, back in Second Chronicles, so if you've uh, forgotten where that is, it's toward the back of your, or front of your Bibles in the middle there. Uh, we have been looking at the, the book of First and Second Chronicles. We'll probably take another three weeks or so, and then we'll finish up this book and then move toward the book of Romans uh, in September. As we've been studying Second Chronicles now, since it has been two weeks ago, almost three weeks now, maybe you've forgotten, this book was written as the children of Israel are coming back from the Babylonian captivity. That's roughly around the year 500 B.C. Some of the events that are being written about in the book are 1000 B.C. It's a retelling of the history from the time of really Solomon, King David and Solomon. It's a retelling of the history from then up into the captivity. This is what happened in our nation that brought us to the point where God took his hand of protection, if you will, off of us and allowed us to go into a period of captivity. But now the Lord is having us return. Let's not make the same mistakes again. That's the general theme or nature of this book here. And so, as we've been studying, we saw a litany of kings, a whole listing of them. There's something like uh, 29 or 30 kings total uh, that names are going to be mentioned in these books. Some of those are kings of the north. Some of those are kings of the southern kingdom. I think we have a timeline here looking. Here's an example of, of the many kings that we've kind of jump through the northern ones in gray being the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern ones, some in yellow, some in gray, are of the southern kingdom of Judah. So many kings that we had to use two different slides. Uh, And today we come to the reign of a man by the name of Jotham. We're also going to look at a king whose name is Ahaz. And so uh, I think there's lessons we can learn. Jotham, you would say, was a good king. Ahaz, you would say, was a very bad king. And we'll learn both the positives and the negatives as we've been talking. There are examples in our lives that we want to learn from. There are examples in our lives that we want to avoid. And so let's look at Jotham. If you, before we look at chapter 27, look at the last verse of chapter 26. It says, Now Uzziah, that was the king, slept with his fathers, he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Now, one of the things that's not covered in the book of 2 Chronicles, but is found for us in the book of 2 Kings, is that in the nation of Israel, during the reign of Uzziah, before Jotham took over when his dad died, that there had been four kings that came along in the northern kingdom. Their names are Zechariah. He was king for six months. There's a fellow by the name of Shalom. He was only king for one month in the northern kingdom. Then Menahem, ten years, pretty long time. And then a guy by the name of Pekahiah, who was there for two years. There was actually one other guy, a guy by the name of Pekah. He was there for one year before Jotham took over in the south. And he reigned almost the entire time of Jotham's administration. He reigned for 20 years. Now, we're going to look, though, that's just a background on the context of the contemporaries. Now let's look at chapter 27, starting in verse 1, the life of Jotham. It says, Jotham was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerashah, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, except he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But the people still followed their corrupt 
practices. Now, we don't have a ton of information, something like eight or nine verses here, uh, on the life of this guy, Jotham. We don't have a lot of information about him. But what we do have is that summary verse. Again, all of the kings that are given to us in the book of First and Second Kings and in the book of First and Second Chronicles, you have the summary verse. He did that which was evil. He did that which was good. And here it is said that Jotham did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now notice, however, there is sort of this statement that is thrown in there, and it says he was just like his dad, Uzziah, except he did not enter the temple of the Lord. You recall, hopefully, from three weeks ago when we were studying the life of Uzziah, that toward the later days of Uzziah's life, a good guy for the most part, but toward the later days of Uzziah's life, he made the determination that he was going to go to the temple. Remember, the temple itself was a structure that had inner rooms and an outer courtyard. The common Jew was allowed to go to the outer courtyard, but only the priests were allowed to go inside. And Uzziah decided, I'm going inside. I do what I want. I'm the king. I'm the one in charge. And you may recall the story that the priests come, and they don't care who you are or who he is, and they say to him, it's not for you to be in here. Get out. And Uzziah gets all huffy about that. I'm the king. How dare you tell me? And the scripture says that leprosy immediately breaks out on him. And they rush him out, and for the rest of his days, he lives in, if you will, this leper village, or this sort of, he he suffers the consequences of being a leper. Now here in our passage, it says he did just like his dad did, Jotham did just like his dad did, except he did not go into the temple. Now the question in the interpretation of this is this, and I'll give you both sides on there. Typically, you would hear he didn't go into the temple, and you would say that's a good thing. You're not supposed to go into the temple. That was Uzziah's mistake. He went into the temple and he paid the consequences for that. That's perhaps what that might mean, that he himself didn't go inside the building like his dad did. However, an alternative interpretation to it would be this, that not only did he not go inside of the building, which he shouldn't do, but he never made his way to the courtyard as well with the other Jews. And so the one idea is that he was so freaked out by what happened to his dad is that he never took the chance to go anywhere near the temple again. Because I saw what happened to my dad. So that could be one thing. But the other way you might look at it is that he was embittered by what happened to his dad. He was hurt by the church, for instance. You know, the church, not just Calvary Chapel, but more than likely we'll do it too, the church will let you down from time to time. People that name the name of Christ, people that are supposedly following him, how come they didn't bring me my meals when I was sick? How come they didn't care for me? How come they didn't call me when I missed a couple of weeks? How come they talked about me behind my back? Christians aren't supposed to do that sort of thing. The church is going to let you down from time to time. The church is going to let down people in your life from time to time. And you'll see the way they treated your mom. They'll see the way you treated your dad or somebody else or that guy that you cared for and loved. And it could hurt you and it can embitter you to the point where you say, you know what? I'll keep my relationship with God, but I'm not going to that church anymore. I'm not going to any church anymore. I'm not opening myself up anymore because when I do, it's just going to knock me down. It's going to hurt me. I think that is what we're talking about here with Jotham. I don't think it's a situation that is, if you will, commending him for not going inside of the building like his dad did, but rather I think his response here, and I could be wrong, you be a Berean, you study the scripture, I think here what we're seeing is he said, I'm done with that corporate worship thing. I saw what it did, and I'll just maintain my own relationship with God in my own way. Can you maintain your own relationship with God in your own way? Yeah, I guess you could. Something happens and you get stranded on an island and it's just you on that island. You could probably figure out what it means to follow the Lord and have your own church services by yourself there. 
But is it the thing that God desires? Is it his intent? We know from the scripture that it tells us not to forsake the assembling of the brethren. There are spiritual disciplines that you can practice in your life which will help you along in your Christian walk. Do you need to do these things to be a Christian? No. Do you need to do these things to go to heaven? No. But will they help you in your Christian walk? Absolutely. Reading the word regularly, praying regularly, fellowshipping, gathering with other believers regularly, giving of yourself and of your resources regularly, fasting, I don't like that one, regularly. As you can tell, I don't do that one as often as I should. Spiritual disciplines. And one of those, as I said, was gathering with the saints. And so remember, again, Hebrews 10, it says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting the meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another even all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again and again in the Psalms, you, you read of the joy as the people gathered together, the brethren gathered together and went to the house of the Lord. And I've said it before, one of the most important decisions I've made in my early Christian walk, I started, if you will, following the Lord. Let's say it this way. I, I began to tag around like with other people that were following the Lord somewhere in the summer of 1988. In October of 1988, I decided I wanted to, to have my own relationship with Christ. It was no longer now just sort of on the coattails of other people, but I wanted to be a believer. It was in January of 1989 that I decided I'm going to regularly be in church because that's where the Word of God is going to be taught. That's where fellowship is going to be taking place. It's not the only place that the Word is taught and fellowship takes place, but it certainly is one of those places. And, I, and I'm also sort of like one of these record-type people. Like I like to set records you know, for myself. I used to play wiffle ball in the backyard by myself and have my own little league and set all kinds of records. I, I led the league in records uh, in that league. Um, but so I'm a little peculiar in that way. But I, wanted to s- I set a personal goal for myself. I was going to be in church every Sunday. And I told you one time I went and my wife, my girlfriend didn't go and some lady freaked out. You're here all by yourself. That's amazing. I'm so excited. This sort of thing. But God used it in my life to teach me. I read this about President Garfield. President Garfield was the 20th president of the United States back in the 1880s. And it says this, James Garfield, president of the United States, took office on March 4th, 1881. On his first Sunday in Washington after his inauguration, a member of the cabinet insisted that a meeting must be called to discuss a matter that threatened a national crisis. The president refused on the grounds of another appointment. The cabinet member then insisted that the national matter was of grave, grave, very important, importance, and that Mr. Garfield should break his engagement. But President Garfield refused to do so. Then the cabinet member remarked, I would be interested to know, sir, with whom you have an engagement so important that it cannot be broken. And President Garfield replied, well, I'll be as frank as you are. My engagement is with the Lord to meet him at his house at his table at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, and I shall be there. For whatever reason, it seems King Jotham minimized the importance of corporate worship. Maybe his kids had soccer on Sunday mornings. Perhaps it was his day to sleep in and get a little bit of extra rest. Maybe the beach was calling his name as he does my name frequently here. He had reasons that come up. And I use examples from today because they're reasons that we wrestle with and we struggle with. And we can, if you will, minimize the importance and next thing you know, we're not regular attenders anymore at church. 
I'd encourage you, make it, and you guys, I'm sitting here, Greg, I'm here, you, you got me. You know, I understand that, and I'm not suggesting that you're not the person who doesn't come, but I do know that things can enter in, and it can impact our walk with the Lord. Now, Jotham, this king, I think, was a good guy. I think the text indicates that he sought to do the right thing. He's a guy, you'll see, that does well personally. He can maintain a relationship with the Lord, but those that he was called to lead, he didn't have much influence over. Look at verse 2. It says, now he was 25 years old when he began to reign. It continues, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but the people still followed their corrupt practices. Now when we talk about corrupt practices, we're talking about idolatry. And so he was doing all right. He wasn't practicing idolatry, but the people of the nation began to. And I wonder if, because of the compromise in his life, where he was no longer going to corporate worship, the people that he was influencing, and so think of it from the perspective of mom and dad on the children, the people that he was influencing began to observe that. And we know from human experience that all of us have a need to worship something. There's just this aspect of who we are, that there's a need to worship something. And since they're no longer, dad and mom aren't bringing us to church anymore, and since they're no longer worshiping the Lord, there's a need to worship something. And they go and they find the false gods that are around them here. And it seems in this instance here that this small compromise of this spiritual discipline in Jotham's life, he can sort of get by and maintain his relationship. But that little compromise those that are looking to him for guidance and leadership and direction. They couldn't. And their own walks with the Lord were gravely impacted. And so as we continue now, so the nation here is practicing its idolatry. Continuing though, verses 3 and 4, it tells us that there was peace in Judah. And since there was peace in the nation, the king is doing what he needs to do. Since there is peace in the nation, he's allowed to now take funds that would have gone to fight wars and invest that into the city. Look at verse 3. It says, He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he did much building on the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the hill country of Judah and forts and towers on the wooded hills. As you look into verse 5, we see that when an attack did come against them, that they were able to kind of easily prevail. Look at verse 5. It says, And he fought with the king of the Ammonites, and he prevailed against them. And the Ammonites gave him that year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 cores of barley. The Ammonites paid in the same amount in the second and in the third years. And so they, they worked out, if you will, conditions of a peace treaty to the advantage of the nation of Judah. Verse 6, so Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and his ways, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And then he slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And then his son Ahaz reigned in his place. Small little section, eight or nine verses here, looking at this man's life. Jotham was a good king. I don't think anybody anywhere would say he was a great king in the history of the nation or the kingdom of Judah. He was a good king, but he wasn't a great king. And how sad that is, isn't it? Hey, yeah, we all want to be good, but wouldn't you much rather be great? Wouldn't you much rather be known for having accomplished a particular thing and this and that? And, and I think the reason, and again, perhaps it's his failure to gather at the place with the people of God. Perhaps it's his, the people's example and observing that. 
and the way in which they, it just led him, left him as this good king. Do you just want to be good? Or do you want to be great? And so the lesson from Jotham here, the opportunity had to be a great king. He didn't take advantage of it. And so he ends as just simply a good king. Now, as we move on to chapter 28, we're going to look at the 12th king of the kingdom of Judah. This is a fellow by the name of Ahaz. We'll see, like his dad, he ruled for 16 years. But unlike his dad, he didn't seek the Lord. Look at verse 1. It says, Ahab was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnon, and he burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and he made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. No doubt about it, Ahaz was an evil king. He was an idolater. And he led the people and encouraged the people in idolatry for themselves. Notice in verse 2 where it says, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's a reference to the reality that when the nation split, the, the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, as soon as that occurred, the northern kingdom adopted the practice of idolatry. And every single king, it's the reason why on the slide that we had, every one of the kings in the northern kingdom are listed in gray. Every one of those kings practice in idolatry. And now, here is a king of the southern kingdom. He's not the first to do so. But here's a king in the southern kingdom that is practicing the ways of the kings of Israel. He's now into idolatry. And he's encouraging the nation. You're going to see at the end of this chapter, he actually shuts the doors to the temple and replaces it with idolatrous worship all around the nation. He's encouraging the people in their idolatry as well. It goes on in verse 2, or in verse 2, we see that he's seeking these idols and he's leading the southern kingdom in there. One of the verses that, or one of the phrases that stands out to me in the midst of verse 2, maybe verse 3, I forget, but it, it speaks there of the abominations of the nations. The abominations of the nations that's mentioned here is the practice of taking your infants or your young children and bringing them to the, the place of worship of these false gods. And what they would have is they would have a statue. The one in particular was the statue Molech. And it would be an iron or a metal statue. You'll notice there it uses the word metal images. It might be six, eight feet tall, whatever it may be. And they would put that in the midst of a, a fire, a pillar of fire. And they would light it up, and this, the metal would get you know, red-hot metal. The arms of the statue would be out like this. And then the people, believing that they were appeasing these false gods, they would take their infant, they would take their small children, and they would lay them across the open arms of these uh, metal images. And then, as the babies would scream from the pain of being placed into a fire and just simply being laid on the hot arms of these metal images, the people would dance around and they would run around and jump around and scream and yell to mask the cries of their children. How on earth anybody could think that there would be a God somewhere that would appreciate that and would like that is beyond me, but even more so, how anyone that has a knowledge of the one true God could think that he would be appeased by that or pleased by that 
is beyond me. And this is what Ahaz, the king, is introducing to the nation. Ahaz is bringing the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. Israel, the northern kingdom, has already kind of gone off uh, you know, the deep end here. But the southern kingdom, there was always, they were always kind of tapped into the Lord a little bit, it seemed, and would come back to him. They never strayed too far, it would seem, enough that they could always find their way back here. But he is bringing them now to the depths of depravity that the southern kingdom had ever known. This is how the reign of Ahaz has been described. William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary, he said that he was the most wicked king that Judah had yet known. Chuck Smith in the Old Testament study guide, he says, during his reign, the kingdom sinks to its lowest spiritually and begins its final downward trend. J. Vernon McGee, I like him. Anybody listen to him on the radio? Don't touch that dial, he says anyway. He's dead, I think, but uh, they have his tapes. He said, Ahaz went completely into idolatry, and he led the southern kingdom into that idolatry. The depths of depravity now with this king. Now, picking up in verse 5, it says, as a result of this, these things, therefore, the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him, and he took captive a great number of his people, and he brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with a great force. For Bacah, the son of Remaliah, that's the king of Israel, he killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Messiah, the king's son, and Azekim, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. The people of Judah, led by King Ahaz, they wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. And as it says in the Old Testament, a number of different places, they went a-whoring after the foreign gods. And so God gave them over to that. That's what you want? Okay, fine. That's what you're going to get here. Now, that doesn't just mean that God is saying, do whatever you want to do that. Gave them over to it. All right, I'm done fighting with you like a parent who just gives up on disciplining their kids. Do whatever you want here. That's not what's implied here when it says he gave them up. But it's, the idea is he gave them up to experience the consequences of their decisions as well. So go ahead and make those decisions, but you're going to experience the consequences of those decisions as well. We read in the New Testament, Paul teaches the same exact principle. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. The Lord allows us to experience the consequences of our decision from time to time. Now, you might look at that and you're like, why? Why does he allow that to happen? And some might look at it as because he wants us to pay the penalty. You know what? You made my day miserable. Now I'm going to make your day miserable. Go sit in your bed, on your bed. I say that to my kids all the time. And sometimes that's my motivation for disciplining the kids. I want them to be as upset as I am uh, in this particular circumstance here. But that's not the reason that God disciplines. God disciplines to teach us. The root of the word discipline is the idea of disciple. And so God disciplines us to teach us, to bring us to our senses so that we realize the error of our ways and to walk in his ways. And so God is disciplining these folks in in so much that he is removing his hand of protection because he wants to teach them through this whole process here. And the first thing that we see is Syria attacking and defeating, and it says taking captive a great number of the people of Judah. That's verse 5a. Then we see the Lord removes his hand of protection and allows the brethren... The, the Jews from the northern kingdom to come down. Now, Syria, they're not a bunch of saints up there. 
The northern kingdom of Israel, they're not a bunch of saints up there, but God is using them, if you will, to accomplish his purposes, and that's the discipline the people of Judah. Look what the northern kingdom does, verse 5b. It says that they kill 120,000 men of valor. Men of valor would be like our Navy SEALs or our Green Beret or just our average Marine. You know, serious individuals, they know how to fight. 120,000 of them wiped out in this particular day as the Lord removed his hand of protection. We also see that Zikri is a mighty man of Ephraim. Ephraim was the largest of the tribes of the north uh, and sometimes is used synonymously with the nation, uh, name, title, Israel of the northern kingdom there. Zikri goes in, he attacks, he kills the king's son. He kills, if you will, the vice president of the nation here. He kills the guy in charge of the palace, all these things. The Lord had removed his his hand of protection because the people had forsaken him and they went after their foreign gods. I mentioned it before on Sunday mornings here, but I think it does bear repeating, is the purpose of this is not just so that they'll feel pain. But as I said just earlier, the purpose is that they'll come to their senses and that they'll repent. And we see, as we move into the next chapters, that's exactly what happens. You see, God loves us. Some of us, that's hard to believe. Others of us, yeah, I got that. I've learned that lesson. But the Lord loves us. Just like you love your kids and you discipline your kids, usually if you're you know, in the right frame of mind, you discipline them out of a sense of love because you want to see good things for their lives. And you know that this pattern of behavior that they're doing here, they continue to do those things into their future. They're going to mess their lives up here. I was talking to my son Luke, and, and Luke, he did something. I said, Luke, let me ask you. If you were to do that and you were working for somebody and you had a job and you were doing, working for someone, how do you think they would respond? And it was as if a light went on in his little mind. He said, I don't think they'd let me work there much anymore. I said, exactly. We want you to have good patterns of behavior in your lives. The Lord loves his children, and the Scripture says that he delights to show mercy to his children. And believe it or not, now we might, I don't know if that A plus B equals C here, because he loves us, because he delights to show his mercy, he disciplines us. You remember the story of the prodigal son? It's found in Luke chapter 15. I'm not sure if it's other places, but certainly there. And the story is of a kid, and it's supposed to personify our relationship with the father uh, and the older brother. But the story is of, of a kid who comes of age, he gets a little bit older, and he, he knows that he's going to inherit lots and lots of money when his dad dies. He's got all sorts of plans of what he's going to do with this money. He's going to buy a big house, he's going to have parties, he's going to get a boat, all this sort of stuff that he's going to do with it. And unfortunately, dad is just healthy as an ox. That guy just won't die. And I'm never going to get access to that money. You know, I'm getting older and older. I'm, I'm the, the prime of my life is passing me by. Dad, when are you going to die here? And so he finally has the nerve to go to dad and say, hey, dad, could I have my portion of the inheritance now? And his dad, uh, just like the Lord, says, you know, All right, you have freedom. Go ahead and do that sort of thing. And he takes his portion of the inheritance and he runs and he, it says he spends all of his money in riotous living. And eventually he's got no more money and with no money. Nobody wants to be his friend anymore here. And he's got no food. And he ends up taking some junky jobs, miserable situation. And he's looking at his life and he said, my life stinks. I don't know how I got to this place. I had it so good before and now look at me. You see, what happened was the consequences of his decisions brought him to the place where he was thinking about things and he came to his senses. 
And he realized, he said, you know, there are slaves at my dad's house, servants at my dad's house that live better than I'm living right now. I'll go back to my dad, beg for his mercy, and see if, you know, I could just have a job as a servant. At least I won't have to do this miserable job of um, feeding the pigs and, and stuff like that. Now, here's the thing that's so delightful about the passage, which I think so many people really love the passage is, is because you see the heart of God in the dad. Because as the kid is coming back and he gets close enough now to uh, home, the scripture says that his dad sees him from afar off. His dad is up on a balcony or something maybe, binoculars, whatever it may be, and he's looking. Every day it seems that he's going out there and he's looking and he's hoping today will be the day that his kid returns. And when he sees his kid, it says that he hikes up, it doesn't say this, but we know this, he hikes up his little robe of sorts and he goes and he runs to his son and he embraces his son. In our lives, very similarly, we wander away from the Lord, we drift a little bit, and then we come to our senses, and I think it's one of these situations, we turn and we bump into the Lord who's right there with his arms open, who's waiting for us to return. It's the heart of God to show us mercy. He delights to do so, it says in the book of Micah. He loves us, and he'll discipline us to bring us to our senses so that we will return to him. And that's what he's going to do with Judah here. Let's move on to verse 8. In addition to the children of Israel, the northern kingdom, killing 120,000 of these navy seals, if you will. They also take captive another 200,000 men of Judah. 200,000 of their fellow Jews, they're going to lead them off into captivity. Now let me, let me just give you some perspective here. There are the most recent uh, population estimates for Mercer County, New Jersey, is that there are 368,000 people that live in Mercer County, New Jersey. So picture all the people that live in all the communities, Ewing and Lawrence and Trenton and East Windsor and Hamilton and all of the communities, 368,000 is the most recent figure. Imagine if 200,000 of them, 55% of them, were taken and let off into captivity. For those of you that live over in Bucks County, your population is a little larger, about 600,000 people. Imagine if a third of your neighbors scattered throughout the entire county were taken and led off into captivity. You can't, it's hard to even imagine the devastation that came as a result of this God removing his hand of protection here. Now, it's important to remember that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, though they're separate nations with separate kings and all these sorts of things, nonetheless, they're still brothers. They're cousins, if you will. They're all Jews here. And as you're going to see in verse 9, the Lord is not pleased with the way the northern kingdom is treating their cousins from the southern kingdom here. In addition, because of their cruelty and other things. And in addition to that, they're violating very clear instructions in the Old Testament law given to us by Moses. Leviticus 35 says, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. You shall not make him serve as a slave. The Jewish people were not allowed to enslave their brothers. There's actually instructions here in the instance where uh, one Jew might, if you will, purchase the contract of a slave from a non-Jew. Within seven years, he had to give that Jew complete and total freedom here. The year of Jubilee set him free. And so the Jews were not allowed to enslave their brothers here, and that's exactly what the children of uh, the northern kingdom are about to do. And God's not pleased with this. You've been overly cruel, and now you're going to violate these practices. So look at verse 9. It says, But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded, 
And he went out to Samaria and he said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand, but you've killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves? Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me, and send back the captives of your relatives whom you've taken for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. So the Jews of the northern kingdom, they were going to be used by God to inflict discipline on the Jews of the southern kingdom. But these Jews of the north, they just took a little too much delight in being able to do so. And now, in God's eyes, they were taking it way too far. And I appreciate the words again. Look at verse 10b. It says, Have you not your own sins against the Lord your God? So rather than these Jews from the north, rather than them being humbled by what was occurring here, rather than them being broken for, by realizing, you know what, we've done the same type of things in our nation. You know, we should be judged just like these guys are being judged. Rather than God using these circumstances to do something in their lives, instead they were delighting in another's demise. And God wasn't pleased by it. And he said, it better stop. And so I appreciate verse 12 because there's certain leaders in the northern kingdom, a minority of people certainly in the northern kingdom, but there's certain leaders up there who respond to the rebuke of this prophet and they respond very well. Look at verse 12. It says, certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah, uh, the son of Johanan, Berechiah, the son of Meshilamoth, Jehezekiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, they stood up against those who were coming from the war, and they said to them, you shall not bring the captives in here, for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So these five men, they appear, it seems that they're godly men living in an ungodly place. And like Popeye, they say, you know, that's it. That's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. We're not doing it. We, we've done enough evil. We're done with doing the evil. Send them back. And amazingly, these captors, they listened. They, they were enough of an influence on these people that the people say, yeah, all right, you're right. We, we knew, we probably knew we shouldn't have done it anyway, and so you're right. And you know, sometimes I think all that is needed is that someone stand up. I, I shared a story a long time ago. My, my son Jake and I, we went up to New York City to, to see a play. I think it was Lion King or something. Uh, and on the, the way home from New York, we, we went by the arena in Newark. And a, a sporting event just got out, and many people these days go to sporting events, not even for the sport, but for the beer. You know, something like a $10 beer that really makes it a night or whatever. And these guys apparently had a lot of money on, in their pocket to buy a lot of beers. And, and they got on the train, a group of five or six of them, and they, were, they just took over the train. Loud and obnoxious and all sorts of stuff. It's, a, it's 10 o'clock at night. Uh, but what really began to get to me was when they began to taunt and harass other people on the train. And I was just like, you know, I, I just can't take it. And I think I can take one or two of these guys out, you know, and the rest will get me or whatever. And I was just like, you know what, you, you've pushed me to the point. And so I began to look around to see who my allies are on this train. Who else is sick and tired of these guys? And so finally, one of them just turned around and someone said something to him or whatever. And he turned around and he began to hit him with uh, like something he had in his hand, on this other guy on the train. And that was it. And I finally said, you know what, enough. 
just sit down and go to where you have to go. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm in a lot of trouble now. Who's with me? And it was like crickets, you know, or whatever. But, you know, it was interesting. A whole bunch of other people said, that's right. And they stood up with me. I wouldn't stand up. But they, they kind of stood with me. And we said, you know, it's enough. And sometimes it's just that someone needs to stand up and say, stop. And these guys here, these five men say, you know what? We've done enough in our nation. They lump themselves with the rest of them. Our nation has done enough to incur the wrath of God. We're not doing something else. Stop. And so they say to these guys, and notice how the guys respond. Verse 14, the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. And the men who have been mentioned by name, they rose up, they took the captives, and with the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, they gave them sandals, they provided them with food and drink, and they anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. And then they returned to Samaria. I have a note here. What a sweet group of men, aren't they? 200,000 captives, some, most of them probably without sandals or shoes, if you will, on their feet. Some of them injured from the battle, unable to make the long trek, you know, 10, 20 miles to where it is that they have to go. And these guys here, they clothe their nakedness, they put shoes on their feet. Those that can't walk, they, they find donkeys or whatever that can bring them to where they need to go. I just appreciate it. What a sweet group of men. To a group of people that deserve judgment, right? The children of Judah deserve judgment. And yet they show just a, a level of mercy to them. You know, one of the lessons that Pastor Chuck Smith has, has taught us in his years of ministry, Pastor Chuck uh, is a pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, kind of, if you will, the first Calvary Chapel. But one of the lessons that he taught us is, if you're going to err, err on the side of grace and mercy, as opposed to on the side of judgment. And you know, sometimes we may make mistakes and, and a person deserves the judgment that they're getting or the, the consequences that they're getting, and we want to come alongside of them. And if we're going to make a mistake here, I want it to be a mistake in the side of mercy. And these guys, they show mercy here. God delights to show mercy. That's his heart. And so these guys here, they, they show a mercy to these people that deserve judgment. And they get them back to Jericho. Jericho was a city uh, actually in the tribe of Benjamin, which was part of the two tribes that made up the kingdom of Judah here. Now, verse 16, sadly... The discipline that Ahaz is experiencing, the grace, the mercy that these five men are showing to the people of Judah, you would think it might bring him to the place where he says, you know what, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But instead, instead of repenting or crying out to God for mercy, he continues on the same path that he was going. And a series of new attacks uh, come. Uh, the Edomites, it tells us, attack. The Philistines, so these are nations in the south. The Edomites would be the southeast. Uh, of where Jerusalem is, the, uh, the other group there, the, the Philistines would be the southwest over by the Mediterranean Sea. So all these nations, these peoples are coming from the south of him. And so he appeals to a nation in the far north, a growing uh, empire, the nation of Assyria, the empire of Assyria. So verse 16, at that time King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. For the Edomites had uh, come against him. They defeated Judah. They took away captives. The Philistines had made raids on the city in the Shephelah and in the Negev of Judah, and they took Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, Gedaroth, Soko and its villages, Timnah and its villages, and Gizmo, Gizmo I should say, uh, with its villages, and they all settled there. And so he turns to the Assyrians. 
Now, there's the nation of Syria, and then there's the empire of the Assyrians, different group of people here. So Syria is really just to the north of Israel, and beyond them would be the Assyrians. And at this time, the year is roughly 730 or so B.C., the Assyrians are growing up. They're going to become, for the next 150 years, the most powerful empire on the, in the world at that time period here. So it's a little bit before that occurs, but we're moving right toward that here. And so in some sense, it makes sense to go to them uh, to, to get help and to get uh, the support that they're going to need against these southern nations. They're going to be the most powerful. It would be good to have them as your friends. So in some senses, it makes sense to do that. But we learn from the example of the book that God's people weren't to look to these foreign nations for their strength, but they were rather to look directly to God. And so Ahaz should have known that because there's plenty of examples of kings that came before him in the 12 or so that came before him that made the same mistake and had to learn difficult lessons. It's important that we learn the lessons of others. I I suggest to you, pick up biographies and become a student of other people's lives because you can learn valuable lessons from the success stories that they have, but also from the mistakes that they made. Ahaz isn't learning these valuable lessons. Isn't it interesting, though, how often you and I will turn to just about any other thing or any other person but to the Lord when we need our help? We'll go in all other directions, but so often we won't go to the Lord for our assistance. And here he goes to these Assyrians. Instead of being humbled as God was trying to do in his life, Ahaz continues to be the the way that its word in the scripture is stiff-necked like your dog when you're trying to put a leash on him and bring him to a particular place and he just will fight it and won't go with you. Stiff-necked. He won't go where God is trying to lead. Look at verse 19. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, because Ahaz made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. And rather taking that humbling process that the Lord gave him and going to the Lord, he goes to the king of Assyria. Look at verse 20. It says, So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and inflicted him instead of strengthening him. Ahaz had taken a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and from the houses of the princes, and he gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. How sad to see that the person that Ahaz ran to, this guy Tiglath-Pileser, rather than helping Ahaz, Instead, we see that he uses it as an opportunity to exploit Ahaz. What he essentially does is he says, oh, great, I'll take that gold and that gold and that gold. Sure, give me it all. Takes all of it, puts it in his back pocket, and then he kicks, if you will, Ahaz while he is down here. He doesn't help him at all, but he uses it as an opportunity to exploit Ahaz. And you have to wonder, even though Ahaz was this wicked king, he was leading the people of Judah, you have to wonder if Ahaz would have repented and said, I was wrong, what the Lord would have done. I suspect the Lord would have delivered the people of Judah here. But he didn't. Notice as you move into verse 22, even in that great distress of being afflicted by the last person he can turn to, notice he still doesn't repent. It says, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him, and he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, then I'll sacrifice to them that they may help me. This again is the the metal image of Molech with the arms heated up, sacrificing his own kids in there. And it goes on, it says, but they were the ruin of him 
and of Israel. Ahaz. Verse 24, Ahaz gathered the vessels of the house of God and he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. Closed the church down. We don't need it anymore. Nobody's attending anyway. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places to make offerings to the other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. And what was it that brought Ahaz down? It was the same thing that brought the people of the northern kingdom down. It was the same thing that brought King Solomon down toward the end of his life. It was the sin of idolatry. Again, look at verse 23. And those gods were the ruin of him and of Israel. And you know, false gods will be the ruin of you and I. Now, you're probably thinking, Greg, I'm not going to go after any foreign gods. I would never have a metal image you know, with its hands extended. I would never light a fire to it and dance around and offer my kid to it. I know better than that. Perhaps you do. You probably know better. You're probably aware enough to not set up statues in your yard with little flowers around them and pray to them or around your home or on your dashboard. Probably if you've been around the faith enough, you've learned that we go directly to the Father and we don't use metal or any kind of an image for that. You probably know better to not pray to the saints and to not pray to Mary or to anyone else uh, to hear your prayers. And, and I suspect most of us in this room, we're okay with that. And so, but I do think that this idea of the foreign gods being the ruin of us still applies to you and I here. And, and here's how I think so. First off is our definition of what a false god is or a foreign god is. And then second of all is trying to figure out, well, how will that ruin my walk with the one true God? A simple definition of a false god is a false god in our lives are those things that take preeminence in our lives. They're the things that we build our life running after, either seeking to acquire or the person that we're seeking to please. This thing or this person, if you will, becomes more important to me than God or than acting like God. And as we're running after these things, and it could be our wealth, it could be our, our relationships with other people, it could be our physical pleasures, it could be the life that we're building here, it could be my, just my own piece of life. For many people, God in their life is self. My well-being, my happiness, my joy, uh, my, the pleasure that I have, all of that comes first. Everything else comes second. You take those things away that bring me joy and happiness, and you're going to feel my wrath here. What has become the God of my life? Self has become the God of my life. Those things that take preeminence in our lives, those things or those people that are more important to us than God or acting like God. And little by little, as we build our life running after that thing or that person, we slowly destroy our Christian walk. It's almost like Jotham. Now, his problem was something different, but it's almost like him. Yes, I'm still a believer. And I believe I'll go to heaven when I die here. And I, if you will, I sort of have this Christian life here. But God really wants me to have this up here. He wants so much more for me. And I've given it away by running after these other things. False gods can come in many forms. And each of them are as destructive as those that brought about the ruin of Ahaz's life. And so I'd encourage you to take inventory of your life. What are those things that you're running after? What are those things that kind of creep in and suddenly you find yourself going after them more than you do going after the Lord? Well, finally, last couple of verses says, Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways from first to last 
Behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem. For they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. As it was said, Ahaz, the depths of depravity he's brought the nation in. One of the things, we have four more chap- five more chapters or so left in the book. Those chapters are primarily going to look at one man, a guy by the name of Hezekiah. So the next two weeks, we're going to study the life of Hezekiah, chapter 29 through 33 or so. And I'd encourage you, read about him. Great, exciting news with Ahaz, or excuse me, with Hezekiah because he just loves the Lord and wants to seek the Lord. Uh, so it'll be an encouraging thing, if you will, to move toward the end of the book. But Ahaz, a man that was ruined by his foreign gods. I think there's some lessons for us in there. Amen? All right, let, let's let the Lord continue to speak to us as we worship. Father, we thank you for... The, the Word of God, Lord, a sure, firm foundation from which, Lord, we can base our uh, understanding of who you are and our walks with you. Lord, we thank you for the examples today of these two kings that you've provided to us by your Holy Spirit, and we ask that your Holy Spirit now would take the things that we've read, the things that we've heard, if you will, mix them with faith in our hearts, and Lord, that the Holy Spirit, you, the Holy Spirit, would be our teacher. Lord, put your finger, if you will, on areas of our lives. Show us what it is you want us to learn from this. Expose those areas of sin or those tendencies that cause us to go astray from you. And then, Lord, give us the courage to respond in faith, trusting you and walking in the ways in which you desire for us to live and to honor and to please you. We believe this prayer is according to your name, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.